Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Fake. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience mm-hmm. by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. Tonight, our show consists of a discussion of the book and movie, Twelve Years a Slave, uh, the story of Solomon Northup, who was kidnapped and sent to slavery in the state of Louisiana in his subsequent uh, rescue, and we'll have a descendant on with us just a little bit later. I want to make you aware that we're picking up the show on www.blocktalkradio.com backslash the gift of freedom. Also, I would advise that you sign up for a newsletter from the gift of freedom. You can do that at www.theuniversityofblackhistory.com. Also, um, these shows are archived, available to you, for free on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. While we're waiting on our guest, I want to bring you up to date on some uh, current affairs that's going on. And the ongoing affair is the financial crisis going on in Washington, D.C. And the Okay, I believe our guest is ready now, and um, our guest is Clayton Adams, who is a direct descendant of Solomon Northrop. Good evening, Clayton. Okay. Also, alarm there, Clayton's not with us yet. Um, hopefully, he'll call back in. Hello. Are you there, Clayton? Yes, hi. This is Clayton. Oh, okay, Clayton. My name's Preston Washington. How are you doing this evening? Oh, fine. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about Clayton. Where do you live? What kind of work are you engaged in? <laughs> well, I live here in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Originally from Syracuse. Moved down here. I have wife, children, um, I mean that's 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 the gist of it. Okay, and uh, you are a direct uh, descendant of uh, Solomon Northrop, and I understand your family's known that quite a while. That uh, yes. Solomon was your ancestor. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, known it for quite a while now. My grandmother, Victoria. 
north of Dunham. She is the grandson of Alonzo, Solomon's son. Oh, I see. And, and she definitely made sure that all of her children had a copy of, of his book, 12 Years a Slave, and, and know their history. And then she was passed down to, to me from my mother, Carol. Okay, so you were given a copy of the book? When did you well, get no, the copy? No, no. My grandmother, Victoria, gave all of her children a copy of, of the book. And how old were you when you found out that you were... How old said, was I? Yeah, when you found as out. As a child, as a child, you know, you, you hear things about your your ancestry and it could normally just go in one ear and out the other as a parent is trying to tell you about your history when you're young. So it wasn't until my teens uh, that I came across and truly listening to what my mother was telling me about Solomon Osa. I was, uh, I came across a, a book that she had in her library, and I read it. It was putting on Omasa. It was a trilogy of slave narratives to which uh, Solomon was the third. It was Henry Bridge and John Henry Brown. And she told me that Solomon was my great-great-great-grandfather, but and just like any other teenager, in one ear and out the other, until I went to college and was studying uh, black literature where I came across his name again. And then I really was more curious than uh, what my mother tried to instill in me in my earlier teen years and went back and asked her in more detail. Um, and that's when... I paid attention this time. Did any of your teachers know about your history and your connection to Solomon? I didn't even know, so I didn't even know what to tell them. Like I said, I didn't pay attention until after I saw the name again in in college where I wasn't sure to say, you know, this is, uh, it would have been awesome if I could say, yes, this subject that we're studying in this part of time of black literature, yes, this is my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, it, it was so after then that I really understood my family heritage, and thus I read the book again myself. It was around 1989 where I read the book myself and was totally so, in awe. When you were in college, was there any classes, any teaching about the Underground Railroad or any information about black abolitionists? Very brief, more in college, of course. High school, very, very brief in upstate New York and Syracuse. So it wasn't like a defined black history class in the high schools in the late 80s of Syracuse. Uh, but in college, I was able to get more detailed information on that if you took the right courses. And I took black history and black literature, so... And when did your family get formally involved uh, in the acknowledgement of uh, Solomon Northrop publicly? 
Are you referring to the annual Somewhere North of Celebration that they have in Saratoga Springs, New York? That's part of it. I understand a number of you uh, guys attended this last event. Oh, we've been attending this since the very first one that Renee Moore put together back in 1999. Okay. So, and does this serve as your uh, family reunion, or do you have other family reunions of the Northford family? Oh, uh, we we have our own normal family reunion that we have usually between Geneva, New York, or Syracuse, New York, because that's where the most of my family resides. Uh, this is just an extra bonus. So we don't have the opportunity to go every year to Saratoga Springs because we have family all over from D.C., me and Pittsburgh, whole another half of my family in, in the state of California itself, one to which was able to fly from Los Angeles into Albany, New York, this year to attend the celebration Um my cousin Lena was able to fly. She's done that before in the past. And so has my grandmother because she uh, moved out there, my mother's mother, in the 60s. So once we were informed of the first uh, Solomon North of Day celebration of freedom, that we had a lot of family coming from all over to attend that first annual event. Okay. You mentioned earlier um, that you had normal reunions. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more in detail? How you mean? What you mean by it? just normal? Just a normal family reunion where everybody just pick a weekend in the summer and get together and just celebrate not seeing each other for a year and get caught up with with family and and hang out. Okay. So, and um, you descend from Alonzo. Right, the, the the lineage goes Mintis Northup was Solomon's father. He married uh, Susanna. They had Solomon and Joseph. Uh, Joseph, we still do not know too much about. Uh, I believe he is Solomon's youngest brother. I thought he was the oldest brother, but Solomon had uh, his three children, the oldest being Elizabeth who was born around 1831, 32. Margaret was soon born after, around 1833 or 34. And then uh, they relocated from, like, the Kingsbury area. They moved to Saratoga, and Alonzo was born around 1836. Alonzo had a son, John Henry, which is my grandmother, Victoria's father. And then Victoria had my mother, Carol, and a lot of other children, a lot of aunts and uncles I have. Okay. And what's the makeup of uh, your family? Are there separate ethnicities, et cetera? Uh, there's... Uh, can you yeah. rephrase that? I want to make sure I heard you. Well, the, the makeup of your family, uh, any black or whites? Uh, Native American um, that you're aware uh, of? I mean, we have black and white in the family. I'm not sure or I understand the question, but 
Well, you early on. about who we might have married or, or what have you? Well, back in Northrop's day, um, was there any interracial marriages in the middle to late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, that you're aware of? Oh, I know... Let's see. As described, Solomon described his wife Anne Northup in in the in the book he described her as a in that terminology at that time, a quadroon, if, if that's what you're trying to get at, where she was a mix of black, white and Native American. As far as Alonzo's wife, I have no idea. John Henry to what I've known of my grandfather or my great grandfather, I'm sorry, my grandmother's parents were both black. Uh, her mother, Victoria's mother, died at a very early age. So I think my grandmother was only three years old. I've just recently been told that uh, her grandfather, John Henry, uh, met. After the death after the death of his wife, uh, met another lady who was Caucasian, and they had uh, children together. Mm-hmm. And then Victoria married her husband Mintis, or excuse me, Minor Lindsay, which came across to having children. My mother is Carol. There's Aunt Laura. Yeah. Aunt well, Aggie. The reason that came up, we had someone email us, and uh, for instance, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, married a white woman, and today he has a, a quite a number of uh, white Frederick Douglass descendants. Uh, yes, uh, this last uh, reunion that we said, like I said, uh, after John Henry, which is my grandmother's uh, uh, father, after his wife passed away when she was young, Later, I'm not sure how long later, uh, he met a white lady and they had children together. And we actually just this year met them for the first time ever this year, that that side of the family. So that was very interesting. It was very cool. It was very awesome. Yeah. And during these celebrations, um, now Solomon was born free, and you mentioned his father, Mentis. Correct. Was what Mentis, did he buy himself out of slavery? No, no. Mentis was born a slave. Mentis, I believe, we're tracking down to say he might have heritage definitely came from Africa. He was born a slave on a slave plantation in Rhode Island under the North Oaks. They relocated up to the uh, Minerva area. I'm not too familiar with the New York, upstate New York areas. And he was able to become free out of his slave master, which is Captain Henry Northup, uh, will, which basically stated upon his his death, certain slaves will be set free. And Mentis was one of them. And his slave master, uh, Captain Henry Northup, passed away in 1797. And soon thereafter, I believe 1798, Mentis was officially 
became free, and Solomon was born 1808, so about 10 years later, so he was definitely born a free black man. Do any of the descendants of the slave owners attend the Solomon Northrop days there in Saratoga? Not that I know of, of the ones that I went to. Okay. I know that there has been some contact with them, uh, but that will be a question for either Renee Moore, who founded Solomon Northrop Day, or uh, Dr. Clifford Brown, the poli-sci professor who actually discovered Solomon Northrop and did extensive research on, on him and brought him kind of to light with the help of Dr. Sue Egan uh, of LSU, who was able to republish his book, 12 Years of Slave, back in 1968, which was out of publication for about 100 years. So that was a definite plus as well, which is the copy of the book that I have. I see. And... The area that uh, Solomon was kidnapped from, was that a black settlement? It was Saratoga Springs, New York. It was not a black settlement. It was predominantly white. It was uh, like the Las Vegas of New York, in a sense, with all of the gambling and all of the horse racing. So even at that time where... I think it was soon thereafter that the New York State became a free state, and there were still slaves amongst the town of Saratoga that Solomon walked free in. And are there descendants living there to, to this day? In Saratoga Springs, York? No, no. That was that was the whole how this basically came about. Uh, if I could go back, it was a very interesting story. In the early 1999, January, uh, Dr. Clifford Brown from Union College was putting on an exhibit of Solomon Northup. And and I believe he actually flew all the way down to Louisiana because he was able to trace some of the plantations to which Solomon was uh, belonged to. I can't remember which plantation it was still still erect, if it was Master Ford's plantation or Master Epps plantation, but he was able to take some of his students down there to visit and came back and, and made a huge display at, uh, display at Union College, and I believe that's the same time that Renee Moore found out about Solomon Northup as well and was intrigued because her living in Saratoga Springs all of these years, I I'm not sure if it was all of her life that she never heard of this black man, and so she was intrigued on to go. And my mother just happened to be one day reading the newspaper in Geneva, New York, or Waterloo, where she lives, which is approximately three hours west of the Saratoga Springs area. She came across a story of Solomon Northup in a big exhibition that was being held at Union College in Schenectady. And she got in contact with uh, Clifford Brown to inform him that she is a descendant because in his research, he couldn't find any living descendants of Solomon Northup. 
course, maybe the, the area, like I said, we spread it out west of New York and all the way to California and and down to the Virginia, D.C. area, so it would be kind of hard to find any distinct relatives, depending on how big your radius is. So she got in contact with Clifford Brown. He flew her in, and at the last day of the exhibit, my mother was able to be introduced informed uh, Clifford Brown of all of the descendants that are still alive, to which we knew about Solomon Northup ourselves anyways, and read to whomever was there at the last exhibit, and I think that's what inspired Renee Moore to try to create the Solomon Northup Celebration of Freedom Day, which she successfully did, and came that third Saturday in July 1999. We were obviously invited, and the rest is history right there. So thank you, Mom, for reading the newspaper. <laughs> now, there's a movie uh, coming up for release here uh, pretty soon, very quickly. Tell us a little bit about the movie, the upcoming movie, Twelve Years a Slave. And uh, well, let's take it chronologically. I think there was a movie at least made for television. Yes, in eighteen up. or nineteen eighty-four. Yes. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that movie. What do you know about that? Movie? Oh, that movie I definitely saw. That was definitely a family movie uh, that I made sure that we saw. It was called Solomon Northup's Odyssey. It starred Avery Brooks, John Saxon was in it. Very, very predominant actors in the mid '80s, and that just basically told the story of Solomon Northup, just as this new movie that's coming out now, Twelve Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. Were you? Uh, how old were you when that movie came out? When that movie came out, I was about 14, 15 years old. And did you guys show that? When I actually saw it was when I was about 20 years old. Like I said, it wasn't until I discovered and asked more questions about it more as I got older um, that I saw the movie, made copies for a lot of my family members so they could have it, made sure my children saw the movie as they got older. How did you introduce that film to your and the book to your children. Oh, it's basically, believe it or not, this is a story about your great, 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 great grandfather. Uh, briefly told what it pertained to in regards to him being born free uh, in a time where slavery was common. He was kidnapped, sold into slavery for 12 years before he was rescued. I gave a brief synopsis of it. At at that time, I had two children. Well, one, um, when I told her, she was 1999. She was there at the very first one. She was nine years old, Nia. So that kind of sparked an interest at a young age because she was now actually going to these annual events so it's a little bit more easier to to wean her into it for her to actually listen and understand and and want to learn more. Does it look like she's now major in history? Excuse me. 
You think she might major in history once she? Oh, she already graduated college. She was born in 1990. She's done with college. Now, it was very interesting, as I was stating before, in the mid to late 80s in Syracuse, New York, in my history books in high school, there was no mention of Solomon Northup. Of course, there was mention of Frederick Douglass, of course, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, College was a brief... Let me interrupt you, um, okay. Clayton. We have some callers on the line. Oh, and wow. uh, I'm going to give out the last two digits of the area code. 63, you're on the line. Go ahead. Gary? Hello? Yeah, you're on the air. Tell us where you're calling from and give us your first name. Are you there, caller? Okay, the caller from area code that ends in 8-8, you're also on the line. Could you state your name and let us know where you're calling from? Six three or eight eight. Okay, how about the area <laughs> code that ends in thirty five? Last one, thirty five. You're on the air. Uh, we've got a bad connection there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe they'll call back. Uh, we're currently having some difficulty getting them on the line or, or what have you. Um, now, where were we? Oh, by the way, um, we like to use the reference when we talk about slaves and who they were on by. Uh, Slaveholder uh, as opposed to master. Okay. Or a slaver, uh, that sort. Now, we were talking about your children and their first exposure and their reaction to learning that they were descendants of uh, Solomon Northrop. Can we pick that up again? Oh, yes, no problem. Like I said, in 1999 was the first annual Solomon Northrop Day. My oldest daughter was nine years old at that time, so it was very easy for her to. Uh, understand and want to learn more because she was actually there in Saratoga Springs. So Nia was very amped uh, into learning more about it. I uh, gave her a children's version of the book that they had produced at that time. You know, not not as I want to say not as detailed, but not as big as a normal book. And she read it, and we talked, and then I showed her the movies, uh, Solomon Northrop's Odyssey, and it was it was very nice, very nice. Uh, my second daughter was born later that year, October 1999, Charisma. Uh, I've taken her to these um, annual events, 2004, she was only five years old, 2005, 2008. So as she got older, she started to want to know 
you know, why are we going here? So it's a little bit easier to understand and mm-hmm. and show her physically. Um, this is this is part of your heritage. So it's so much easier when you're actually able to go and walk the path so Solomon Northup and to understand that this is a true story, this is a part of your history. She actually in her fifth grade, she's in eighth grade now, and in fifth grade she actually did a school paper on Solomon Northup during Black History Month. Her and her cousin uh desired, so that was awesome that they picked Solomon Northup. They could have picked anybody and they chose to pick Solomon Northup, so Oh, good for them. <laughs> yes, I was I was definitely surprised. Yeah. And honored and happy. How did uh, was the reaction or your children's reaction to the first movie any different or contrast with the reaction to the latest movie that's being put out? Well, the, I can say the movie is coming out naturally November first uh, this year. After I got remarried to India, she has three children. I took them to the Solomon Northup thing as well, and they were in awe to learn about this event, this history. This is a story of a, of a a true story. So Dave has been inquisitive about it as well. And as I told everybody, this even though this is my history, my ancestry, this is all of our ancestries because there's so many stories of so many uh, free black men who was kidnapped and sold into slavery and that are never heard of before or if they were rescued there was no stories about it so this whole story represents everybody exactly. in that same predicament that's a good point um, there have been probably thousands as you mentioned of free blacks who were kidnapped and sold into slavery in fact our listeners uh, can find out more about that uh, from a book called Freedom at Risk, The Kidnapping of Free Blacks in America, 1780 to 1865. And that was by Carol uh, Wilson. Wilson, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry? I said Carol Wilson. I'm, I'm... Yeah, that's the author. I'm familiar with Okay. Yeah, and that book can be read online. Again, that's Carol Wilson. And the book is called Freedom at Risk, The Kidnapping of Free Blacks in America, 1780 to 1865. I think she uh, covers about 300 um, cases in her book out of the probably thousands that occurred. Uh, And again, you can read that book online. Um, Clayton, tell us a little bit about Northrop's wife and... and, and, um, Okay, about Northrop Wife's and and before we do that, let me see here. Let me go over my notes here. Um, and um, we want our listeners to know that, you know, even before this, uh, prior to the Dred Scott decision, there were hundreds of blacks um, who used the courts and the liberty laws to sue for their freedom um, back in the day. And uh, Dred Scott, 
was a slave who was voluntarily taken into a free state by his owner, and then Dred Scott took the opportunity to sue uh, for his freedom, and uh, he was denied. And um, it was at this time, um, during one of these trials, that Justice Payne, in his decision, came with a famous pronouncement that the Negro had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Anne and her involvement in the petition uh, that she wrote to the governor uh, for her the release of Solomon Northrop from slavery. Yeah, thank you for putting in the nutshell. Uh, when Solomon went with these two gentlemen to New York City to play for them, Anne Hampton was upstate New York. She got a job cooking. She was a very, very prestigious cook in the area of Saratoga Springs and the surrounding area. And in her absence, uh, she took the children with her. And Solomon, who did so, so much, so much work right in that area, from lumbering to working on the Champlain Canal to playing the violin to actually having his own contract business for rafting timber, which I don't think a lot of people know that, uh, the intelligence that he had to have his own business and raft up up, and down the Champlain, north and south, from all the way up to Canada, down to Albany, just rafting timber. Later, with that money, purchased a farm himself. Well, this was kind of what I'm understanding. It was kind of a slow time in, in the business, so he was playing the violin, and these gentlemen uh, who told him that their names was uh, Hamilton and Brown said that they needed someone to play for them. They were in the circus, but they were trying to make some extra money as the circus is on, on a break, and they wanted him to play in New York City, so he said, fine, New York State is still is a free state for slaves, and he went there, and then they asked him if he wanted to come to Washington City, where they were supposed to meet up with their, uh, with their circus, and initially... Solomon was hesitant about that because he knew Washington City was uh, the major slave trading capital of of the colonies, and they stated that they would give him his freedom papers, so he wouldn't have to worry and enough money to give back uh, back to us here until this spring. So he willingly did, and after he got drugged, and found out that he was in a slave pen. And I could go briefly forward. He came across a slaver by the name, uh, not a slaver, excuse me, uh, a fellow slave by the name of uh, Clement Ray, I believe, who soon after 
their acquaintances for weeks, he actually was able to escape to freedom. And on his, they shared each other's stories. I believe uh, Clem Reyes was uh, was another uh, slave, um, free man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Don't quote me on that. But, um, believe that was a situation, but as he was able to escape and and for freedom headed to Canada, he actually made it to Saratoga Springs as Stalin Northup told him about where he was from and actually stayed overnight with Anne Hampton's brother on his okay. way to to Canada where he was able to relay about Solomon Northup's whereabouts, because at that time, and that no one knew where he was. So the first inclination that the family even knew was luckily through Clem Ray escaping and actually staying with Anne Hampton's brother overnight as he continued on to to his freedom in Canada. And he was utilizing the Underground Railroad at that time. Is that not that right? is Clem that, that is definitely correct. Okay. Now, what well, about with Anne hearing about this, I, um, I'm assuming if everything goes as should, she told, her, obviously, his sister, we got information of where Solomon Northup could be. But at that time, they were just in Richmond, Virginia, uh, before Solomon got sold down on a slave ship to uh, Louisiana. So she was able to, as you state, write that petition now, when she um, wrote that petition, the governor utilized what was known as the Liberty Laws at that time. Could you share with our listeners um, your knowledge of the Liberty Laws? I would love to. The Liberty Laws, if and you correct me if, if I get this uh, incorrect, was the Liberty Laws the, the case where if there was a stolen or kidnapped free black man at this time you could protest and prove that he is free to be able to uh, release him from slavery? Is, is, is that the yes. law that you're referring to? That's right on target. And the liberty laws were coming about about the same time that the Fugitive Slave Act uh, had been written in 1850. It had been enacted. And this is where any slave that had escaped from slavery, uh, anyone coming in contact was bound to hold that individual for the sheriff or the local police officer, uh, peace officer and to be held so that person could be returned to slavery. And also at this time, uh, you know, the Civil War uh, was about to begin or the very beginnings and the reasons these liberty laws, Fugitive Slave Act, etc., uh, was a forerunner to uh, the Civil War coming about. And uh, now Solomon was heard from, I understand, three times. Um, two that you've already mentioned. Uh, Clem Ray was one. Now, did you mention this sailor by the name of John Manning? No, not yet, but you're on point with that. That was a sailor who was on the Brig Orleans, if I'm not mistaken, after they were sold, after Solomon and 
several others were sold to Louisiana to go down to Louisiana from uh, Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And that first uh, the first time they heard from him was in 1841, and I believe the last time they heard from him while he was being held captive was in 1852. Uh, what do you know about that 1852 contact? Yes, jumping forward 11 years, that's when he was able to, this was after he's been on the plantation of, as you say, slave owner, uh, Epps, who hired a carpenter from Canada, Bass, who in himself stated that he really put it nicely, did not approve or agree with the whole uh, system industry of slavery because if you think about it, it really was an industry of slavery, but he was just working to get some money and go back to Canada, so he really didn't approve of slavery at all. And speaking with Solomon Northup as they worked together together to uh Build something for for Epps. Solomon felt that he could trust him to tell him the whole story, his whole story. Because mm-hmm. he believed this time that he will be able to actually have someone on his side and maybe possibly help him to escape. Because prior to that, he tried uh, telling another overseer who was working on uh, Epps Plantation as well earlier, I think it was I think it was seven years earlier that he thought that he could trust this, this white man in, in the story and what happened with that was he turned, he actually told Epps about Solomon trying to escape said that he could write a letter and wanted me to mail it. And Solomon North, like I said, he, he was a very intelligent man. He learned and adapted very quickly to to surviving the life of a slave as he pursued to find his opportunity to escape from freedom or to get were two people back in upstate New York of his whereabouts to be able to rescue him from, from, from freedom, from slavery. Excuse me. So he adapted very, very quickly into understanding what, and knowing what to do to survive and and actually really reading into the different uh, characters, people to which he came about. And use that skill to finally trust this second man, Baz, and tell him his story. And a year later, if not less, he was free. Okay. Now, um, we know that Solomon won his freedom via the Liberty Laws. And... Um, he and his supporters, they also sought uh, prosecution of uh, 
those individuals who had kidnapped them, and this led to a lot of slavers like Judge Taney that I was speaking of earlier. Yep. They reacted with much stricter laws, uh, such as the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, and that was an attack against the supporters of the Liberty Laws and the anti-slavery movement. Now, Solomon sued, I believe one of the gentlemen's name was Birch, and the other man involved in in selling him into slavery. How did that turn out? That, unfortunately, turned out to just a simple acquittal. He actually also was able to, when when he published his book, in 1854, the literacy that he wrote was so so descriptive. I mean, if you read the book, you really believe that you are right there. He was so precise, so descriptive. His memory of, of words and quotes is truly amazing that after 12 years that he could write a book so descriptive of basically the everyday life of a slave in the cotton plantation. And in in writing the book, there was a gentleman who read the book who kind of remembered seeing Solomon with the two initial uh, Hamilton and Brown in D.C. by the by the detailed description that, that Solomon uh, stated in the book of his actual whereabouts you know, Washington City, as it was called back then, was unfamiliar territory to him, so he was only able to describe what he was able to see. I believe that person's name was uh, St. John. And he obviously, at the reading of the book, arranged to meet with Solomon Northup because he had suspicions of, of the two characters who who he was with, who we now believe Hamilton and Brown was not their name. Their names was actually Alexander Murrow and uh, Joseph Russell. But the problem was, where were they going to hold a trial? In New York, a free black man is able to testify in the court of law on his own behalf. But in Washington City at that time, he was not able to, and that was the major uh, turnabout of this problem. The, even though he lived in the state of New York, the official kidnapping happened in Washington City, so the big question, just like today, of any major crime or, or murder, where are you going to have the trial? What state are you going to have the trial in? And right. unfortunately, the trial was in Washington City where he could not testify on his own behalf, so everybody... Got acquitted. Okay. Uh, I want our listeners to be aware also that they can read uh, Northrop's book online. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about the film that's uh, coming up. You said November 3rd. So, is that a setback date? I thought it was coming out around October the 18th. Actually, when we came to when my family and I and all of our family, it was, like I said, we, we met the new side of the family um, this year. And we have family that came from California this year. And with the movie coming out, 
uh, Fox Searchlight Pictures got involved into the Solomon Northup Day celebration and was present as well. Uh, Lupita, the main actress, one of the main uh, actresses in the movie who plays Patsy, the fast-picking cotton picker on the plantation with that. She was present as well. They actually showed us a a longer trailer than you could normally see on the internet of of the movie. So that was our first introduction to it. And are there any uh, are there any tear dropping moments in the movie? Oh, there are many. <laughs> there are yeah. there are many. As, as my daughter Charisma said, she was happy at some parts, sad in other parts. Other parts was just in awe and believing that the movie definitely. This will have Fox was able to grace us with the families being able to see the movie and a private screening prior to it coming out. And you are right, there are some places that are coming out on October 18th, but it's just select cities and select theaters. Oh, I see. So New York City, Los Angeles, I believe Dallas, uh, some of the bigger major cities. Baltimore may be one of them, are coming out on October 18th. There's another list of particular cities that are going to be able to see the movie on October 25th, but it comes out nationally on Friday, November 1st. I've been in contact with Fox Searchlight since July, so I'm getting this inside information. Give our listeners a little tease by describing one of the tier jerking moments. <laughs> oh, well. Wow, I'm trying to not give out the movie. If you read the book, you you know many. I could definitely say that Steve McQueen and his directing was totally brilliant. He caught the essence of the movie itself. Of the book, I'm sorry, of the book, and was able to translate that into film, which we all know is kind of hard making a book into a movie without losing some of the essence from the book. But there was definitely certain scenes that he was able to make sure was in the movie that deemed necessary to understand Solomon. Obviously, the most teared jerker part of the movie is when he was finally rescued and reunited with the family. I'm like, that's that's just a given right there. Uh, when he first got captured and when he first was in the slave pen in Washington City and woke up in the shackles and slowly realizing that he possibly could have been kidnapped and realizing that he is in the slave pen and getting whipped by the person who ran that slave pen as he uh, protested that he was a free black man of, of Saratoga Springs, New York. That's a tearjerker as well because his strength and his passion to state and not buckle and say, I am a free black man. And no matter how many times they whipped him so bad that the paddle broke and then they went to the cat and nine tails and he was still protesting his that 
he was a free black man. That's that's another tearjerker as well. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> we don't want to, we don't want yeah. to give it all away right now. Oh yeah. I want our listeners to know too that uh, this film was produced by Black Brit, and this yeah, month in the United Kingdom, they're celebrating uh, Black History Month. Yes, they are. Okay, what we're going to do right now, uh, Clayton, we're going to open up the lines again. And uh, if anyone calls in, if you have to have something to say, please jump in. Now, Clayton, my question for you, were any parts in that film that contradicted what you read or expected? Like I said, Steve McQueen is a brilliant artist in what he does. And what he was able to put on film with the time allotted, the movie is already two hours and 15 minutes. Uh, there were scenes in there that I was shocked that he even put in from the book that I thought should be in the book, I mean in the movie, and I was glad that he was able to put that in the movie. So mm-hmm. as far as contradictory, there's not really too much contradictory at, at all. Okay. Is someone trying to get in? We have someone on the line? Okay, I thought I heard someone on the line there. Yeah, me too. Uh, so, um, if anybody who wants to call in case they're uh, getting confused, the phone number is 347-324-5552. I guess you got to push the right prompt. To my understanding, if you're listening... Only I think you have to hang up and recall again. I don't know if you can switch over to well, be able to call, be connected. They call that line and uh, hit number one. Our producer will know that they're in queue, and then right. we'll filter them into the uh, into the uh, program. Now about your comments, you were talking about some scenes. Uh, which scenes were you making reference to? Uh, uh, in regards to what I believe should have been in the yeah. movie, I was shocked that it actually was. Yeah. Uh, like you said, I don't want to give up too much of the movie. So. I don't want to give too much, but give us a little slice. You, 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 would, you, you would know, if you if you read the book, you, you would know. If, if you have not read the book and you see the movie, please go read the book. And in that aspect, in that regards, uh, I would like to say that me and some relatives of mine with encouragement of, of my wife, India, are going to ourselves, since this uh, book is actually public domain, because back when he wrote the book, there was no copyright. So anybody could republish the book. As you can see, there's now there's so many different publishers republishing the book, putting their own information in the intro or the foreword. So me and a couple of my cousins are going to get together ourselves to keep this even more in the family and republish the book ourselves and add our own personal descending information in the book that will not be in any other book. And there was a recent book that was just published out uh, with uh, Professor Clifford Brown that I mentioned earlier in the story, along with uh, Rachel Seligman and David Fisk, they were able with all of their research over the last 16 years to find information about what happened to Solomon Northup 
after he was rescued. Some information about before, about his, all of the businesses that he had, that the farming that he was able to do when he purchased the farm and uh, was into corn and oats with with Anne. That that was a lot. That was very major. He was able to purchase his own oxen and stuff, so he was very financially off. Um, the book is called Solomon Northup, The Complete Story of the Author of 12 Years a Slave, and that book is now out. There's also a blog about 12 Years a Slave, uh, Frank Eakin, who is the son of uh, Dr. Sue Eakin, who, as I stated before, was the first to republish the book in 1968 after being out of print. He dedicated a website, and that's 12yearsaslave.org, to which on there you can read a blog that I wrote about Solomon Northup if you want more detailed information. Okay. Is there a caller on the line? I hope there's a caller on the line. Yes. Yes, caller. Give us your name and where you're calling from, and go ahead with your question or comment. My name is Carol. I'm calling from Waterloo, New York. Okay. And your question or comment? Well, the Northrop name, Solomon Northrop, is, is I'm Clayton's mother. I'll put that this in. Is, this is this is my mother. Oh. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> like I said, this is the person who read the newspaper, who was able to contact Clifford Brown or else we all never would have even known about the Solomon North of Data ever they created. Okay. So, um, I'm you. really glad you call in, you. and uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm so glad to hear from you. I, um, I just have one comment to make. The Northrop name, Solomon Northrop, his father, Mintus Northrop, yes. was freed as uh, when his owner died, he was he was freed in his will. So Mintus also had a huge farm up in uh, not Saratoga. Where is it, Jamie? Uh, Minerva in that area. Yes. Falls area. And the the man who freed him was a lawyer. And, and they had a lawyer a group. So when he was down south, the people who came down to free him were sons of that lawyer. So mom, tell me what uh what did you think about them flying you in for that exhibit uh that started all this public acknowledgement? Oh I was I thought I was just going to look at an exhibit, and <laughs> they were nice enough to uh, put us up in a hotel and everything, and while I was there, I was asked if I would read a portion of his book that night, and I'm saying, oh, my God, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. So they put on a very nice show with 
They had eight longhorns. I don't know if you know what longhorns are. Yes. I'm sorry, you said yes? Well, yeah, you asked me about Tell me me this, Mom. How did you find out about the movie uh, that they were uh, putting it out, and what did you think about that? What What about the movie? How did I find out about it? Yeah. It's been talked about for a couple of years. It's not a new thing. Are there any scenes in the movie that made you especially proud? Right. Proud? Yeah, especially proud. Something in the movie that really spoke to you that was what you had knew about from the family version, from the oral history that you had in the family, and that made it into the movie? His perseverance. Ah. Perseverance, yes. Yes, indeed. It was uh, amazing that he could go through all this. And after it was all over, he spoke about it all over the country. And he he spoke about it in Massachusetts and Connecticut and Although it wasn't like just in New York that he spoke. Yep, Solomon Arthur became a big abolitionist, a big contributor to the Underground Railroad, helping slaves himself. He went and spoke in Canada. They made an actual stage play about the book 12 Years a Slave. That actually was able to go even to Syracuse, where our family is from, he was in a lot of newspapers in Boston and, and Vermont. So he did a lot of abolitionary work as as well as a result to this. And Mom's right, his perseverance, his ability to adapt to his situation and survive yeah. uh, long enough to be able to get his freedom was, was amazing because there was one point that he actually had the opportunity to run and did I mean, he, like I stated before, he was a rafter, so knowing how to navigate. He knew uh, how to build rafts and stuff. He did it for one of his bosses. He made built rafts so it would be easier to float, float the log down the river. It saved him a lot of time and money. Uh-huh. And he also was a carpenter, so he was able to build homes. Well, I understand that he was an accomplished uh, violinist as well. Yes, are, any, are there any violin players in the family today? Uh, my daughter, Charisma, plays the violin. <laughs> She's been playing the violin since fifth grade and playing a piano since fourth grade. And is actually working now with with this movie coming out. She's working with her uh, eighth grade uh, principal and her music teacher now to learn the song that Solomon put at the end of his book, Roaring River, that he played on a fiddle a lot. So she just got her violin now and hopefully 
by the end of the school year will be able to master that just like her great, 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 great grandfather. Right on. Do you guys have any artifacts that are connected to Solomon Northrop? They're all up at Union College. They have a huge display of artifacts. Okay. And the family has none? No, because none of us went down to Louisiana. Oh, that's Georgia all the way, Except my other granddaughter, she went down this past year. Um, She's talking about my oldest daughter, Nia, who went down to a vacation in Louisiana, in New Orleans this, this year in the spring, and was able to go to four different antique bookstores and one visitor center before she was able to find an original 1854 version of the book and brought it back and presented it to her grandmother, my mother, who is on the phone right now. <laughs> now, you mentioned a museum. Is that the uh, what's known as the old Fort House in Fort Edward Yard? Oh, Fort Edward, yes. That's, that's a different thing, but go ahead, Mom. Fort Edward, yeah. They have a huge museum, and they also have a house there that... Uh, and... Uh, and uh, my age, excuse me, Solomon, where they stayed when they first got married, they had a room, and it's in that Fort Edward house. Okay. And for our listeners that are in that area, uh, that's in Fort Edward, New York. And it's, Correct. Music, and it's called the Old Fort House. And yes. as indicated, Solomon and Anne lived there uh, for a period of time right. after their history. Um, the, the house has a lot of history. I believe George Washington was stationed there at one point uh, during the American uh, Revolutionary War. And they have a room yeah. dedicated to Solomon North of Salman Northrup's dad is buried in that cemetery. Okay. Um, we're out of time. I, I really hate to cut us off, but uh, our time has run out, and I'd like to finish up by, um, Clayton, if you would uh, one more time give us the screening dates for the movie 12 Years a Slave. Uh just say that nationally is coming out on November 1st. Certain cities will get it on the 18th and the 25th. I believe you could go to Facebook to 12 Years a Slave and be able to obtain the actual dates to see if your city is getting it earlier. Um, so only one thing that I want, I just want to say, when people watch the movie, I just hope that they understand. I hope and pray that they understand when they watch the movie to try to put themselves in Solomon's shoes and understand the reality that even the most educated, literate, talented, compassionate, loving husband and father, anybody could have been uh, kidnapped and, and sold into slavery. 
And he was only 33 years old when this happened and taken away for 12 years from his family and understanding the overwhelming love that he had for his wife, Anne Hampton, and his three children, Margaret, Elizabeth, and Alonzo. And that was just the passion and the force that, that made him survive and, and the, the harsh realities of slavery to just only want to come back and, and be with his family. And if you look deep into it, it's 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 a very nice love story in, in the midst of all of the drama. And I'm just hoping this movie will just open that up and understand that this this uh, movie is, is, as we stated earlier, this is just one story of thousands that occurred. And hopefully it will just open up the light of everybody to understand that this is a part of history that has been swept under under the rug for way too long. And it happened, it's in the past, and I'm just hoping it brings out, if anything, less racism and less violence in the world. We can't well. relate with each other unless we understand each other. Exactly. Very stated, uh, Clayton. I want to thank you and your mother uh, for joining us tonight to get this information out, this very important information. I want to encourage our listeners to get out see this movie. Okay? Uh, and after the film wins all the awards, Academy <laughs> Awards and whatnot, we're gonna have you and your mom back on this show. <laughs> that sounds okay. that sounds good. There's also a, a YouTube. Um, uh, Steve Edison, he's a part of Abolition News Network. He recreates uh, interviews of famous African Americans, and he recreated an interview of Frederick Douglass interviewing Solomon Northup, and he has a whole series of volumes of in his. Abolition News Network. It's it's awesome. So if anybody's listening out there and they go to YouTube and just type in kidnapping slash Frederick Douglass slash Solomon Solomon Northup. That's N O R T H U P. Uh, you'll be able to see uh, just half of of the creation, and uh, it was really awesome to to watch. It was pretty cool. Okay. Um, what we're going to do here, um, you can read this book online. And, uh, there's a version uh, that's read by Morgan Freeman. Um, Louis Louis Gossett Jr. I'm sorry. It's Louis Gossett Jr. Oh, Louis Gossett it's, it's, Jr. Right, that's that's the uh, website, the Twelve Years a Slave dot org that I was referring to before. Is Frank Eakin, who is a son of Sue Eakin, who republished the book. That's you can see a lot of blogs on that website from different ends, um, descendants of different people to which Solomon mentioned in the book. My blog is in that as well. The book I mentioned before, Solomon Northup. Uh, the complete story of the author of 12 Years of Slave. If you get that book, you can actually read a forward that my mother, who's been on the line right now, actually wrote in that book as well. Okay, we're going to end the show right now, but I want our listeners to hang on because we're going to be presenting a clip from the book that will be read. 
see you guys after the Academy Awards. Good night, yes, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Mom, stay on the phone. Yeah, I will. Chapter 21 of 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I am indebted to Mr. Henry B. Northup and others for many of the particulars contained in this chapter. The letter written by Bass, directed to Parker and Perry, and which was deposited in the post office in Marksville on the 15th day of August, 1852, arrived at Saratoga in the early part of September. Some time previous to this, Anne had removed to Glens Falls, Warren County, where she had charge of the kitchen in Carpenter's Hotel. She kept house, however, lodging with our children, and was only absent from them during such time as the discharge of her duties in the hotel required. Messrs. Parker and Perry, on receipt of the letter, forwarded it immediately to Anne. On reading it, the children were all excitement, and, without delay, hastened to the neighbouring village of Sandy Hill to consult Henry B. Northup and obtain his advice and assistance in the matter. Upon examination, that gentleman found among the statutes of the state an act providing for the recovery of free citizens from slavery. It was passed May 14, 1840, and is entitled an act more effectually to protect the free citizens of this state from being kidnapped or reduced to slavery. It provides that it shall be the duty of the governor, upon the receipt of satisfactory information that any free citizen or inhabitant of this state is wrongfully held in another state or territory of the United States, upon the allegation or pretense that such person is a slave, or by colour of any usage or rule of law is deemed or taken to be a slave, to take such measures to procure the restoration of such person to liberty as he shall deem necessary. And to that end, he is authorised to appoint and employ an agent, and directed to furnish him with such credentials and instructions as will be likely to accomplish the object of his appointment. It requires the agent so appointed to proceed to collect the proper proof to establish the right of such person to his freedom, to perform such journeys, take such measures, institute such legal proceedings, etc., as may be necessary to return such person to this state, and charges all expenses incurred in carrying the act into effect upon monies not otherwise appropriated in the Treasury. See Appendix A. It was necessary to establish two facts to the satisfaction of the Governor. First, that I was a free citizen of New York, and, secondly, that I was wrongfully held in bondage. As to the first point, there was no difficulty, all the older inhabitants in the vicinity being ready to testify to it. The second point rested entirely upon the letter to Parker and Perry, written in an unknown hand, and upon the letter penned on board the brig Orleans, which, unfortunately, had been mislaid or lost. A memorial was prepared, directed to His Excellency Governor Hunt, setting forth her marriage, my departure to Washington City, the receipt of the letters, that I was a free citizen, and such other facts as were deemed important, and was signed and verified by Anne. Accompanying this memorial were several affidavits of prominent citizens of Sandy Hill and Fort Edward, corroborating fully the statements it contained, and also a request of several well-known gentlemen to the Governor that Henry B. Northup be appointed agent under the Legislative Act.
On reading the memorial and affidavits, His Excellency took a lively interest in the matter, and on the 23rd day of November 1852, under the seal of the state, constituted, appointed and employed Henry B. Northup Esquire, an agent, with full power to effect my restoration, and to take such measures as would be most likely to accomplish it, and instructing him to proceed to Louisiana with all convenient dispatch. See Appendix B. The pressing nature of Mr. Northup's professional and political engagements delayed his departure until December. On the 14th day of that month, he left Sandy Hill and proceeded to Washington. The Honorable Pierre Soule, Senator in Congress from Louisiana, Honorable Mr. Conrad, Secretary of War, and Judge Nelson of the Supreme Court of the United States, upon hearing a statement of the facts and examining his commission, and certified copies of the memorial and affidavits, furnished him with open letters to gentlemen in Louisiana, strongly urging their assistance in accomplishing the object of his appointment. Senator Soule especially interested himself in the matter, insisting, in forcible language, that it was the duty and interest of every planter in his state to aid in restoring me to freedom, and trusted the sentiments of honour and justice in the bosom of every citizen of the Commonwealth would enlist him at once in my behalf. Having obtained these valuable letters, Mr. Northup returned to Baltimore, and proceeded from thence to Pittsburgh. It was his original intention, under advice of friends at Washington, to go directly to New Orleans, and consult the authorities of that city. Providentially, however, on arriving at the mouth of Red River, he changed his mind. Had he continued on, he would not have met with Bass, in which case the search for me would probably have been fruitless. Taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, he pursued his journey up Red River, a sluggish winding stream flowing through a vast region of primitive forests and impenetrable swamps, almost wholly destitute of inhabitants. About nine o'clock in the forenoon, January the 1st, 1853, he left the steamboat at Marksville, and proceeded directly to Marksville Courthouse, a small village four miles in the interior. From the fact that the letter to Messrs. Parker and Perry was postmarked at Marksville, it was supposed by him that I was in that place or its immediate vicinity. On reaching this town, he at once laid his business before the Honourable John P. Waddill, a legal gentleman of distinction, and a man of fine genius and most noble impulses. After reading the letters and documents presented him, and listening to a representation of the circumstances under which I had been carried away into captivity, Mr. Waddill at once proffered his services, and entered into the affair with great zeal and earnestness. He, in common with others of like elevated character, looked upon the kidnapper with abhorrence. The title of his fellow parishioners and clients to the property which constituted the larger proportion of their wealth not only depended upon the good faith in which slave sales were transacted, but he was a man in whose honourable heart emotions of indignation were aroused by such an instance of injustice. Marksville, although occupying a prominent position and standing out in impressive italics on the map of Louisiana, is, in fact, but a small and insignificant hamlet. Aside from the tavern, kept by a jolly and generous Boniface, the courthouse, inhabited by lawless cows and swine in the seasons of vacation, and a high gallows with its dissevered rope dangling in the air, there is little to attract the attention of the stranger. Solomon Northup was a name Mr. Waddill had never heard, 
but he was confident that if there was a slave bearing that appellation in Marksville or vicinity, his black boy Tom would know him. Tom was accordingly called, but in all his extensive circle of acquaintances there was no such personage. The letter to Parker and Perry was dated at Bayou Berth. At this place, therefore, the conclusion was, I must be sought. But here a difficulty suggested itself, of a very grave character indeed. Bayou Berth, at its nearest point, was twenty-three miles distant, and was the name applied to the section of country extending between fifty and a hundred miles, on both sides of that stream. Thousands and thousands of slaves resided upon its shores, the remarkable richness and fertility of the soil having attracted thither a great number of planters. The information in the letter was so vague and indefinite as to render it difficult to conclude upon any specific course of proceeding. It was finally determined, however, as the only plan that presented any prospect of success, that Northup and the brother of Waddill, a student in the office of the latter, would repair to the bayou, and travelling up one side and down the other its whole length, inquire at each plantation for me. Mr. Waddill tendered the use of his carriage, and it was definitely arranged that they should start upon the excursion early Monday morning. It will be seen at once that this course, in all probability, would have resulted unsuccessfully. It would have been impossible for them to have gone into the fields and examine all the gangs at work. They were not aware that I was known only as Platt, and had they inquired of Epps himself, he would have stated truly that he knew nothing of Solomon Northup. The arrangement being adopted, however, there was nothing further to be done until Sunday had elapsed. The conversation between Messrs. Northup and Waddell, in the course of the afternoon, turned upon New York politics. I can scarcely comprehend the nice distinctions and shades of political parties in your state, observed Mr. Waddell. I read of soft shells and hard shells, hunkers and barn burners, woolly heads and silver greys, and am unable to understand the precise difference between them. Pray, what is it? Mr. Northup, refilling his pipe, entered into quite an elaborate narrative of the origin of the various sections of parties, and concluded by saying there was another party in New York, known as Free Soilers, or Abolitionists. You have seen none of those in this part of the country, I presume, Mr. Northup remarked. Never, but one, answered Waddell laughingly. We have one here in Marksville, an eccentric creature, who preaches abolitionism as vehemently as any fanatic at the North. He is a generous, inoffensive man, but always maintaining the wrong side of an argument. It affords us a great deal of amusement. He is an excellent mechanic and almost indispensable in this community. He's a carpenter. His name is Bass. Some further good-natured conversation was had at the expense of Bass's peculiarities, when Waddill all at once fell into a reflective mood, and asked for the mysterious letter again. Let me see. Let me see, he repeated thoughtfully to himself, running his eyes over the letter once more. Bayou Berth, August 15. August 15. Postmarked here. He that is writing for me. Where did Bass work last summer? He inquired, turning suddenly to his brother. His brother was unable to inform him, but, rising, left the office, and soon returned with the intelligence that Bass worked last summer somewhere on Bayou Berth. 
He is the man, bringing down his hand emphatically on the table, who can tell us all about Solomon Northup, exclaimed Waddill. Bass was immediately searched for, but could not be found. After some inquiry, it was ascertained he was at the landing on Red River. Procuring a conveyance, young Waddill and Northup were not long in traversing the few miles to the latter place. On their arrival, Bass was found, just on the point of leaving, to be absent a fortnight or more. After an introduction, Northup begged the privilege of speaking to him privately a moment. They walked together towards the river, when the following conversation ensued. Mr. Bass, said Northup, allow me to ask you if you were on Bayou Berth last August. Yes, sir, I was there in August, was the reply. Did you write a letter for a coloured man at that place to some gentleman in Saratoga Springs? Excuse me, sir, if I say that is none of your business, answered Bass, stopping and looking his interrogator searchingly in the face. Perhaps I am rather hasty, Mr. Bass. I beg your pardon. But I have come from the state of New York to accomplish the purpose the writer of a letter dated the 15th of August, postmarked at Marksville, had in view. Circumstances have led me to think that you are perhaps the man who wrote it. I am in search of Solomon Northup. If you know him, I beg you to inform me frankly where he is, and I assure you the source of any information you may give me shall not be divulged, if you desire it not to be. A long time Bass looked his new acquaintance steadily in the eyes, without opening his lips. He seemed to be doubting in his own mind if there was not an attempt to practice some deception upon him. Finally, he said, deliberately, I have done nothing to be ashamed of. I am the man who wrote the letter. If you have come to rescue Solomon Northup, I am glad to see you. When did you last see him, and where is he? Northup inquired. I last saw him Christmas, a week ago today. He is the slave of Edwin Epps, a planter on Bayou Berth, near Holmesville. He is not known as Solomon Northup. He is called Platt. The secret was out. The mystery was unravelled. Through the thick black cloud, amid whose dark and dismal shadows I had walked twelve years, broke the star that was to light me back to liberty. All mistrust and hesitation were soon thrown aside, and the two men conversed long and freely upon the subject uppermost in their thoughts. Bass expressed the interest he had taken in my behalf, his intention of going north in the spring, and declaring that he had resolved to accomplish my emancipation if it were in his power. He described the commencement and progress of his acquaintance with me, and listened with eager curiosity to the account given him of my family and the history of my early life. Before separating, he drew a map of the bayou on a strip of paper with a piece of red chalk, showing the locality of Epps' plantation, and the road leading most directly to it. Northup and his young companion returned to Marksville, where it was determined to commence legal proceedings to test the question of my right to freedom. I was made plaintiff, Mr. Northup acting as my guardian, and Edwin Epps defendant. The process to be issued was in the nature of replevin, directed to the sheriff of the parish, commanding him to take me into custody, and detain me until the decision of the court. By the time the papers were duly drawn up, it was twelve o'clock at night, too late to obtain the necessary signature of the judge, who resided some distance out of town. Further business was therefore suspended until Monday morning. Everything, apparently, was moving along swimmingly, until Sunday afternoon, 
when Waddill called at Northup's room to express his apprehension of difficulties they had not expected to encounter. Bass had become alarmed, and had placed his affairs in the hands of a person at the landing, communicating to him his intention of leaving the state. This person had betrayed the confidence reposed in him to a certain extent, and a rumour began to float about the town that the stranger at the hotel, who had been observed in the company of lawyer Waddill, was after one of old Epps's slaves, over on the bayou. Epps was known at Marksville, having frequent occasion to visit that place during the session of the courts, and the fear entertained by Mr. Northup's adviser was that intelligence would be conveyed to him in the night, giving him an opportunity of secreting me before the arrival of the sheriff. This apprehension had the effect of expediting matters considerably. The sheriff, who lived in one direction from the village, was requested to hold himself in readiness immediately after midnight, while the judge was informed he would be called upon at the same time. It is but justice to say that the authorities at Marksville cheerfully rendered all the assistance in their power. As soon after midnight as bail could be perfected, and the judge's signature obtained, a carriage containing Mr. Northup and the sheriff, driven by the landlord's son, rolled rapidly out of the village of Marksville on the road towards Bayou Berth. It was supposed that Epps would contest the issue involving my right to liberty, and it therefore suggested itself to Mr. Northup that the testimony of the sheriff, describing my first meeting with the former, might perhaps become material on the trial. It was accordingly arranged during the ride that, before I had an opportunity of speaking to Mr. Northup, the sheriff should propound to me certain questions agreed upon, such as the number and names of my children, the name of my wife before marriage, of places I knew at the north, and so forth. If my answers corresponded with the statements given him, the evidence must necessarily be considered conclusive. At length, shortly after Epps had left the field, with the consoling assurance that he would soon return and warm us, as was stated in the conclusion of the preceding chapter, they came in sight of the plantation and discovered us at work. Alighting from the carriage, and directing the driver to proceed to the great house, with instructions not to mention to anyone the object of their errand until they met again, Northup and the sheriff turned from the highway and came towards us across the cotton field. We observed them on looking up at the carriage, one several rods in advance of the other. It was a singular and unusual thing to see white men approaching us in that manner, and especially at that early hour in the morning, and Uncle Abram and Patsy made some remarks expressive of their astonishment. Walking up to Bob, the sheriff inquired, "'Where's the boy they call Platt?' "'There he is, massa,' answered Bob, pointing to me and twitching off his hat. I wondered to myself what business he could possibly have with me, and, turning round, gazed at him until he had approached within a step. During my long residence on the bayou, I had become familiar with the face of every planter within many miles. But this man was an utter stranger. Certainly I had never seen him before.' "'Your name is Platt, is it?' he asked. "'Yes, master,' I responded. Pointing towards Northup, standing a few rods distant, he demanded, "'Do you know that man?' I looked in the direction indicated, and, as my eyes rested on his countenance, a world of images thronged my brain, a multitude of well-known faces. Anne's, and the dear children's, and my old dead father's, all the scenes and associations of childhood and youth, all the friends of other and happier days appeared and disappeared 
flitting and floating like dissolving shadows before the vision of my imagination, until, at last, the perfect memory of the man recurred to me, and, throwing up my hands towards heaven, I exclaimed, in a voice louder than I could utter in a less exciting moment, Henry B. Northup! Thank God! Thank God! In an instant I comprehended the nature of his business, and felt that the hour of my deliverance was at hand. I started towards him, but the sheriff stepped before me. Stop a moment, said he. Have you any other name than Platt? Solomon Northup is my name, master, I replied. Have you a family? he inquired. I had a wife and three children. What were your children's names? Elizabeth, Margaret and Alonzo. And your wife's name before her marriage? Anne Hampton. Who married you? Timothy Eddy of Fort Edward. Where does that gentleman live? Again pointing to Northup, who remained standing in the same place where I had first recognised him. He lives in Sandy Hill, Washington County, New York, was the reply. He was proceeding to ask further questions, but I pushed past him, unable longer to restrain myself. I seized my old acquaintance by both hands. I could not speak. I could not refrain from tears. Sol, he said at length, I'm glad to see you. I essayed to make some answer, but emotion choked all utterance, and I was silent. The slaves, utterly confounded, stood gazing upon the scene, their opening mouths and rolling eyes indicating the utmost wonder and astonishment. For ten years I had dwelt among them, in the field and in the cabin, borne the same hardships, partaken the same fare, mingled my griefs with theirs, participated in the same scanty joys. Nevertheless, not until this hour, the last I was to remain among them, had the remotest suspicion of my true name, or the slightest knowledge of my real history, been entertained by any one of them. Not a word was spoken for several minutes, during which time I clung fast to Northup, looking up into his face, fearful I should awake and find it all a dream. Throw down that sack, Northup added finally. Your cotton-picking days are over. Come with us to the man you live with. I obeyed him, and walking between him and the sheriff, we moved towards the great house. It was not until we had proceeded some distance that I had recovered my voice sufficiently to ask if my family were all living. He informed me he had seen Anne, Margaret and Elizabeth, but a short time previously, that Alonzo was also living, and all were well. My mother, however, I could never see again. As I began to recover in some measure from the sudden and great excitement which so overwhelmed me, I grew faint and weak, insomuch it was with difficulty I could walk. The sheriff took hold of my arm and assisted me, or I think I should have fallen. As we entered the yard, Epps stood by the gate, conversing with the driver. That young man, faithful to his instructions, was entirely unable to give him the least information in answer to his repeated inquiries of what was going on. By the time we reached him, he was almost as much amazed and puzzled as Bob or Uncle Abram. Shaking hands with the sheriff, and receiving an introduction to Mr. Northup, he invited them into the house, ordering me, at the same time, to bring in some wood. It was some time before I succeeded in cutting an armful, having, somehow, unaccountably lost the power of wielding the axe with any manner of precision. When I entered with it at last, the table was strewn with papers, from one of which Northup was reading. I was probably longer than necessity required in placing the sticks upon the fire, 
being particular as to the exact position of each individual one of them. I heard the words, the said Solomon Northup, and the deponent further says, and free citizen of New York, repeated frequently, and from these expressions understood that the secret I had so long retained from Master and Mistress Epps was finally developing. I lingered as long as prudence permitted, and was about leaving the room, when Epps inquired, Platt, do you know this gentleman? Yes, Master, I replied. I have known him as long as I can remember. Where does he live? He lives in New York. Did you ever live there? Yes, Master, born and bred there. You was free, then. Now, you damned nigger, he exclaimed. Why did you not tell me that when I bought you? Master Epps, I answered in a somewhat different tone than the one in which I had been accustomed to address him. Master Epps, you did not take the trouble to ask me. Besides, I told one of my owners, the man that kidnapped me, that I was free, and was whipped almost to death for it. It seems there's been a letter written for you by somebody. Now, who is it? he demanded authoritatively. I made no reply. I say, who wrote that letter? he demanded again. Perhaps I wrote it myself, I said. You haven't been to Marksville Post Office and back before light, I know. He insisted upon my informing him, and I insisted I would not. He made many vehement threats against the man, whoever he might be, and intimated the bloody and savage vengeance he would wreak upon him when he found him out. His whole manner and language exhibited a feeling of anger towards the unknown person who had written for me, and of fretfulness at the idea of losing so much property. Addressing Mr. Northup, he swore if he had only had an hour's notice of his coming, he would have saved him the trouble of taking me back to New York, that he would have run me into the swamp, or some other place out of the way, where all the sheriffs on earth couldn't have found me. I walked out into the yard, and was entering the kitchen door, when something struck me in the back. Aunt Phoebe, emerging from the back door of the great house with a pan of potatoes, had thrown one of them with unnecessary violence, thereby giving me to understand that she wished to speak to me a moment confidentially. Running up to me, she whispered in my ear with great earnestness, "'Laura, mighty Platt, what do you think? Them two men come after you. Heard them tell Massa you free.' Got wife and three children back there where you come from. Going with them? Fool if you don't. Wish I could go. And Aunt Phoebe ran on in this manner at a rapid rate. Presently, Mistress Epps made her appearance in the kitchen. She said many things to me, and wondered why I had not told her who I was. She expressed her regret, complimenting me by saying she had rather lose any other servant on the plantation. Had Patsy that day stood in my place, the measure of my mistress' joy would have overflowed. Now there was no one left who could mend a chair or a piece of furniture, no one who was of any use about the house, no one who could play for her on the violin, and Mistress Epps was actually affected to tears. Epps had called to Bob to bring up his saddle horse. The other slaves also, overcoming their fear of the penalty, had left their work and come to the yard. They were standing behind the cabins, out of sight of Epps. They beckoned me to come to them, and with all the eagerness of curiosity, excited to the highest pitch, conversed with and questioned me. If I could repeat the exact words they uttered, with the same emphasis, if I could paint their several attitudes and the expression of their countenances, it would be indeed an interesting picture. 
In their estimation, I had suddenly arisen to an immeasurable height, had become a being of immense importance. The legal papers having been served, and arrangements made with Epps to meet them the next day at Marksville, Northup and the sheriff entered the carriage to return to the latter place. As I was about mounting to the driver's seat, the sheriff said I ought to bid Mr. and Mrs. Epps goodbye. I ran back to the piazza where they were standing, and, taking off my hat, said, "'Goodbye, Mrs.' "'Goodbye, Platt,' said Mrs. Epps kindly. "'Goodbye, Master.' "'Ugh, you damned nigger,' muttered Epps in a surly, malicious tone of voice. "'You needn't feel so cuss-tickled. "'You ain't gone yet. "'I'll see about this business at Marksville tomorrow.' I was only a nigger and knew my place, but felt as strongly as if I had been a white man that it would have been an inward comfort had I dared to have given him a parting kick. On my way back to the carriage, Patsy ran from behind a cabin and threw her arms about my neck. "'Oh, Platt!' she cried, tears streaming down her face. "'You're going to be free. You're going way off yonder where we'll never see you any more. You saved me a good many whippings, Platt. I'm glad you're going to be free. But, oh, dear Lord, dear Lord, what'll become of me?' I disengaged myself from her and entered the carriage. The driver cracked his whip and away we rolled. I looked back and saw Patsy, with drooping head, half reclining on the ground. Mrs. Epps was on the piazza. Uncle Abram and Bob and Wiley and Aunt Phoebe stood by the gate, gazing after me. I waved my hand, but the carriage turned a bend of the bayou, hiding them from my eyes forever. We stopped a moment at Carey's sugar house where a great number of slaves were at work, such an establishment being a curiosity to a northern man. Epps dashed by us on horseback at full speed, on the way, as we learned next day, to the Pine Woods, to see William Ford, who had brought me into the country. Tuesday, the 4th of January, Epps and his counsel, the Honourable H. Taylor, Northup, Waddill, the Judge and Sheriff of Avoyel, and myself, met in a room in the village of Marksville. Mr. Northup stated the facts in regard to me, and presented his commission, and the affidavits accompanying it. The sheriff described the scene in the cotton field. I was also interrogated at great length. Finally, Mr. Taylor assured his clients that he was satisfied, and that litigation would not only be expensive, but utterly useless. In accordance with his advice, a paper was drawn up and signed by the proper parties, wherein Epps acknowledged he was satisfied of my right to freedom, and formally surrendered me to the authorities of New York. It was also stipulated that it be entered of record in the recorder's office of Avoyel. See Appendix C. Mr. Northup and myself immediately hastened to the landing, and, taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, were soon floating down Red River, up which, with such desponding thoughts, I had been born twelve years before. End of chapter 21